0: It's question show time, your questions, my answers, wherever you are across the channel. If a question pops into your brain, just type it out, I'll gather them up and I will answer them here. Uh, Now, you're sure you're wondering where have all my videos been? Uh, We've been really busy, Uh, we just released a book, The uh, Universe Today Ultimate Guide to Viewing the Cosmos, written by uh, Dave Dickinson, who does all of our amateur astronomy work on Universe Today, and me. So it's. it's got tips on how to buy a telescope and how to uh, observe the night sky and how to find meteor showers and how to do astrophotography and that's one of the parts that I'm most proud about. We reached out, so you can see, sort of some of the pictures. Um, we reached out to dozens of astrophotographers and got them to contribute their their photos. So it's not like it's the Hubble Space Telescope pictures because not everybody has a Hubble Space Telescope as their telescope. It is. Pictures that regular people can take. So I'm really proud of it. Check it out, amazon.com, and lots of other places. And if you've already got a copy, write a review. It means a lot. I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes. All right, let's get on with the questions. IDES 3853. Could an asteroid, comet, or planet be traveling so fast that we wouldn't be able to react in time? Is there a point where our observation limitations, time to react, and possible speed of an object all balance to give us a goal to shoot for? Just how far are we currently from it? The reality is that right now, we are infinitely far from it. We have no ability whatsoever to stop an asteroid from striking the Earth. There is no, uh, there's no plan in place, there's no technology that's set up to do this. We have some ideas, and if we had decades and decades and decades, I think we could probably figure something out, uh, depending on the mass of the asteroid. But Right now, we, like, just, like, just so you know, nobody's thinking about, no one has actually put any technology into place to actually protect the Earth. It's all just ideas right now and videos from people like me. So uh, the reality is is that to stop an asteroid, you need a long time. Because you need to be able to make small changes to its orbit, which then add up over long periods of time so that what was going to be a hit becomes a miss. And so we would really need right now something on the order of decades to know, oh, this asteroid is going to go around the Sun. Uh, 15 times and then on that 15th orbit, its orbit is going to cross with the Earth and it could collide with us. And so then we go out, we send a probe out, we move it a tiny little bit so that it never becomes, or within the amount of time that we can calculate, it never becomes an Earth crossing asteroid. So there's a ton of things people do, but essentially it's it's in the span of decades. And the bigger risk, of course, is things like comets, which are coming out. Say the ones that are coming right from the Oort cloud. They are coming straight in. They are, uh, there's no way to sort of prevent them, stop them. And you've really only got months of notice. And we have no way to stop that. So right now, uh, we have no way to stop asteroids. And we especially have no way to stop comets. Joseph Sheenan. You previously brought up an issue of space junk proliferation making it impossible to safely launch spacecraft from Earth. Is there a similar risk presented by asteroid mining making it dangerous to leave the inner solar system? Thanks. No. The the asteroid belt is gigantic. In fact, there is such huge, huge chunks of space that any spacecraft can go through the asteroid belt and essentially be unharmed every time it goes through. Maybe uh, if you want to like uh, visit an asteroid, if you specifically put that on your trajectory, then there's a chance that you could meet an asteroid. But in general, there's no way you're going to run into an asteroid, and there would be no concern. You wouldn't get, you know, with the with the Earth, it's a fairly small area, and you got all these these satellites that are buzzing around and there it could break up into small pieces and the pieces are going to be buzzing around and that's the risk. But in the asteroid belt, no, it's so big and it's all going to be kind of moving in the same direction. So, don't worry about it. Grounds, grounds. If we colonize the Solar System like in the Expanse, would water be as valuable as in the series or do we have access to much more than we think? No, uh, the, The Expanse is exactly right. The water is one of the most precious resources that we can get our hands on in the Solar System. It is rocket fuel, it is breathable air, it is water for drinking. It is of construction material, it is all kinds of things and we really, really, really want to get our hands on it. And The problem is that in the inner solar system there isn't very much except for Earth uh, and then in the outer solar system there's tons of it on the icy moon. So once you cross the frost line and get out towards Jupiter then there's a lot more ice out there and it's going to be really, really precious. It's like the, the inside of the solar system is empty of all this stuff and then once you get out to Jupiter. It's all fuel stations and we're absolutely going to need to set up infrastructure out there to take advantage of it. David Schaefer Is it possible for New Horizons to slingshot around a KBO and go back to Planet Pluto, perhaps fall into orbit around Pluto and do all the things that we're hoping for in a follow-on mission? Nope. Uh, I mean, in theory, if there was like the Kuiper built object, but maybe it was like a planet with the mass of Jupiter, or maybe even more, then maybe you could do a slingshot around the planet and come back to Pluto if you timed everything perfectly. But there's just nothing with enough mass to help New Horizons return back to the orbit of Pluto. So New Horizons is, is has gone interstellar, it is on its way out of the Solar System entirely. It's got one last uh, encounter with Ultima Thule and then it's gone. Maybe they can find another one, but that's it. So unfortunately, uh, with this mission, it did what it was supposed to do and they're going to have to come up with another mission to be able to get it, to, to do more observations of Pluto. Phil Smith. So The International Space Treaty seems clear enough, what about data images from a NASA or ESA spacecraft? There's public funding, element interest in some of these explorations, who owns the data? What if, say, evidence of life or a real threat from an orbiting object is detected? What is the protocol or process for who and when is informed? Would it be different if the same situation was from a private spacecraft, like a private operated communication satellite from any of the many countries with varying laws and orbiters above us? Thanks that 's a great question, and the reality is is that there's a million different rules that are going to go along with this and it 's really down to the agency and the research institution or the company that owns the device that has made the observations so i 'll give you a couple a bunch of examples here um, NASA pretty much takes all of the observations that it makes and it dumps it on a public server and makes it available as soon as you want so if you are uh, a researcher, you go to the same place that the public can go and access the data as it's coming in from NASA spacecraft. So, if if a NASA spacecraft discovered uh, an asteroid or a comet or alien life or or anything, the scientists and the public would know simultaneously. The European Space Agency, with some of their spacecraft, is a little different. They have some object some. Uh, instruments which the data is released right away and then other ones the data is held back for the scientists to use first because they need to do their publications and then there's a delay say maybe 6 months, a year and then they release the data more openly. Um, if it's a private spacecraft then it's just a private spacecraft. and It's kind of like if you take pictures with your telescope and you happen to detect an asteroid, the only way we're going to find out is if you tell us. Because it's on it's taken with your telescope, it's on your computer. It's up to you. Uh, and then various research institutions have varying levels of the amount of data. The, um, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope is going to be dumping all of its data every day onto the internet and it's going to be freely available and everybody can dig through it. So, so really it's just on a case by case basis on which instrument is doing the discovering and how people are able to look through that data. And some is more public and available than, than other situations. Graham W. They should rather develop CubeSat technology and send them to Pluto, Neptune and Uranus for a fraction of the cost to be able to do more science. More CubeSats, more places would be awesome, but the challenge with CubeSats is that they don't have a large enough power system and a transmitter to be able to send information back to Earth. So, for example, we've got CubeSats up in orbit because it's actually very close to be able to transmit information back to Earth, once you get to Mars, you need a fairly big Power system and transmitter, and that's really the limiting step, and that's why there is a CubeSat that's going to Mars right now, and the, with the the Insight lander. And the cool thing about that is that it's going to use the it's going to transmit to the existing spacecraft that are at Mars, and then they're going to retransmit the information. So in order to make these CubeSats work, you need to already have a spacecraft that can serve as a transmitter in each one of these worlds. But I think that is what we need, is we need to send just a, a, a base transmitting spacecraft to the different places. Send one to Uranus, one to Neptune, many into the asteroid belt, send them to Mars, Pluto and its only job is to be a really good transmitter. And then you can send other spacecraft with, with a much smaller rocket with very specific instruments and they can gather information and then tr- pass that along to the transmitter and the transmitter can send that data back to Earth. And that's really the rate limiting step that we're dealing with right now. Lord bite me man. Would you advocate for a mission to Pluto? You're asking the wrong guy. I declare world peace just so I could move the entire global defense budget to space exploration. This wasn't a question exactly, it was a response to a question that I put in, but I loved it. The world's military budget is hundreds of billions of dollars, and the space exploration budget is, say, 20 billion for the United States, and then another 10 billion maybe for some of the other world's countries. So it's 120th, the world's military budget. Can you imagine how much space exploration, how much knowledge we could be able to gain if any of that military budget was spent on science and space exploration and astronomy and things like that? Mikkel Funderberg, congrats on 200k. Thanks, 206k at the time that I'm doing this video. Uh, I couldn't do this without you. So. Thank all of you for subscribing to this YouTube channel. Uh, it's given being able to have that many people watch what I'm doing has opened up a ton of opportunities for me. It, it helped me be able to write this book. It's allowed me to go on other people's podcasts, be able to work on other collaborations with other YouTubers. It means a ton to me. So thank you so much for subscribing. To our, to our YouTube channel uh, does make a difference. So if there's a, if there's a YouTuber that you watch on a regular basis and you want to make their life better, just take a second and subscribe to them uh, because it gives them a real benefit to being able to, gives them social proof to be able to uh, bring on more subscribers, to be able to create more of the content that they do. So uh, well, here's to 300, here's to a million. Waffle, what entry level telescope would you recommend for a beginner? I know I answer this question every few months, but I really enjoy the question, and my thinking on this question has actually changed fairly recently and so I thought it was worth it going into so my my standard response has always been get a pair of binoculars uh, look learn the night sky with the binoculars, and if you're still having a good time, then get a telescope and I, I still believe in that part and then usually my advice to the next level is okay now now uh, get either an entry-level Dobsonian telescope. So these are like like a they look like a big tube, um, but they're very simple, very inexpensive. You can get one for say two or three hundred dollars and they're very powerful or get a entry level go to telescope one that maybe is a smaller telescope like a four inch telescope but has a, a little computer control that you can go beep boop and you can move it around the night sky and I I am a lazy person and I really enjoy being able to use the go to telescope but we did our uh, We did our Astronomy Cast 500 episode and we had a star party and everybody had set up all their telescopes and it was a chance for me to try every single telescope and see which ones that I liked and which ones that I didn't like. And the one, sorry somebody is uh, testing out their car very loud back there, Uh, and the one that I really enjoyed actually was using a Dobsonian, a 6 inch Dobsonian on a really simple mount. I know my way around the night sky and so I was able to just take this telescope, point it really quickly. Observe Jupiter, move it to another place, observe Saturn, I was able to do this very quickly just by hand. It had a, a really nice optic system and they're very powerful. And so now I think my thinking is back to Dobsonian. So if you're looking for an entry level telescope, just buy a Dobsonian telescope. They're uh, $300, they're super easy to use, very solid and, uh, and you can't go wrong. So start there. But also get the binoculars first, someone else. Why waste time on ion engines when antimatter engines are better? Is based on a video that we did about ion engines, and I said they were the best things ever. And you're saying that an antimatter engine is better. Well, the problem with an antimatter engine is it is theoretically possible, but so far beyond our existing ability that um, that right now let's use a- ion engines. Right. Um, the the idea of an of, a, of an ion engine is you've got electricity and you've got this really um, good fuel source where it uses electricity to accelerate ions out the back of the engine and that provides a high level of acceleration for really a small amount of fuel so it's very efficient. An antimatter engine would be you would create antimatter and you would create and then you would take matter and you would combine them together and it would release an enormous amount of energy and you would somehow use that energy for propulsion. And absolutely antimatter is the most dense energy form that we can get our hands on. Really it's pure, it is like by the laws of physics, the best fuel source you could possibly want. But the problem is creating antimatter is incredibly expensive, it costs you millions of dollars to generate like fractions of a fractions of a fractions of a gram of antimatter. So we're going to need to get a lot better at being able to generate antimatter, to be able to store antimatter, to be able to take it to space, to be able to use it in some kind of engine. So we are decades if not hundreds of years away from being able to use an antimatter drive. So until then, we're going to use ion engines, uh, but, but absolutely you feel free to get your antimatter drive going and as soon as it's reliable, I will totally recommend that people use it. Alright, that's it. Thanks again uh, for everyone who sent in questions for this week's question show. Uh, now that the book is out of the way, I hope we're going to have a lot more time to do more shows and, and uh, do a lot more of this, so uh, thanks for your patience. Uh, if again, get it here, here's the book. The Universe Today, Ultimate Guide to the Cosmos, everything you need to know to become an amateur astronomer. Uh, check it out. Alright, we'll see you next week.